Great. Well, thank you for your welcome back. It's great to be back with you this morning. Um, interesting weekend, too, to be preaching, because there are all sorts of things happening in the news, aren't there? <laughs> Sometimes leaders lose their popularity, and we've had the sudden resignation of Boris saying, don't these people realise they are only in Parliament because of me? And, of course, in America, we've got Donald Trump facing indictment after indictment and saying, it's a one-way street, it's a rigged deal, it's a disgrace, and it's never happened in the history of our country. It's amazing how things can change, isn't it? It's not that long since Boris, whatever you think of him, this is not a political talk, but uh, whatever you think of him, he was talking quite confidently about still being in power in 10 years, wasn't he? He had plans for his, his next decade, and it's all just gone pear-shaped. Donald Trump may well still be president of America for a second time. He thinks anyway, and lots of others do, but possibly from a prison cell. Wow. <laughs> things change around. And popularity can, visit very, can disappear very, very quickly. This is a picture I like this week. This is David Moyes. I don't just like it because he's a Scotsman, but uh, David Moyes, manager of West Ham, uh, the first uh, English manager, to, uh, or manager of an English team, to, to, to win a European trophy this week. West Ham haven't won anything for decades. And there he is, leaping about the pitch. And I'm sure half of the, the uh, relief and the satisfaction he feels is from the fact that just a few days before the final, everybody was saying, well, they're going to get rid of him at the end of the season. <laughs> they don't dare do that now. And West Ham are saying, oh, no, 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 no. He's brought European glory to West Ham. The job is his for as long as he wants it. But we know that's not true as well, because you can always find an excuse for sacking a manager. Another manager I'm very happy about at the moment is Darren Moore from Sheffield Wednesday. And again, he celebrated promotion uh, just a short while ago. Promotion is the stuff of drugs. Everybody's very happy. Darren Moore can stay there as long as he likes. But just a few days before that, it looked as if he'd lost. Because in the, the uh, first leg, uh, of the, 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 the big match through which he had to get past Peterborough United, he lost 4-0. And people said, nobody's ever come back from a score like that. Well, he got it back to 5-1 in the second leg, and they went through on penalties. But for a while, it looked as if Darren Moore, too, was going to lose his job. And uh, people were sending him racist messages and tweets and things like that, and uh, just couldn't wait to get rid of him. Now he's flavour of the month again, and everything's fantastic. I feel very good about these two managers, because they're both Christians, and if anybody could cope with, with uh, loss uh, better than most, it should be those two who are servants of Jesus. Darren Moore says, everything I do out on the pitch is for the Lord Jesus. And that's fantastic. That tends to put things into perspective, doesn't it? But Jesus, following his life through this, 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 this uh, series this year, and uh, he suffered the same kind of treatment from time to time. We talked a few weeks ago about the fact that in the three years when Jesus was around preaching and healing and teaching, um, there were three phases that he went through. The first is the year of obscurity, when he's just living around Galilee, going to small towns, Capernaum, Bethsaida, places like that, Tiberias, and uh, simply building a reputation for himself as somebody who is out of the ordinary. For one thing, he explains the word of God with, with power and authority, not like many other religious teachers. For another thing, rumors are starting to grow that this guy does miracles, often very quietly, not with much show, but people come to him and they're healed. And gradually his reputation starts to grow. That's the year of obscurity. The, the, the next year is the year of public favor. Well, no wonder. And the third year is when everything goes sour. And it's the year of opposition. And at the end of that, of course, he's crucified. But even in the year of public favor, 
when his ministry is really going well, there are those who turn against him. And that's the story that we're tracing this morning from John chapter 6. We've only read the 10 verses that come at the end of it. But um, uh, we'll fill it in just as we go down. And uh, the great statement at the end of it uh, uh, is, is Peter's statement, isn't it? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And so I want to look at three things this morning. What was it that led Peter to make a statement? At this point, everybody else is going off and leaving Jesus and saying, no, we don't want any more of this stuff. This guy is not what we thought he was. We're not going to follow him. And Peter says, we are sticking with it. So three things. First of all, why did Peter start following Jesus? Let's retrace that. What brought him to be such a convinced disciple in the second place? Second, why did other people stop following Jesus? Because if you look back through the passage, John describes these other people as disciples. Not part of the twelve, but members of the fan club all the same. And uh, it was a big thing in Galilee, obviously. Jesus' reputation had grown and grown. And uh, you could be talking to one of your friends in one of these small seaside fishing towns and <coughs> mention Jesus. You're not one of them, are you? You say, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I follow Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I've got the badge, you know, and uh, a few of us, every so often we take a day off work, we go and listen to him preach. It's like going to a football match. You know, it's, it's something we do as a group activity. And uh, yeah, I've got a lot of time for Jesus. I think he's really good. And his wife would chip in and say, I, I, don't you believe him? He's a real fan. He's got the poster on the wall and everything, you know. And, and, and then you meet him a few weeks later and say, so, so, so how's it going with this Jesus that you're following? Ah, nah, he wasn't what I thought. I, I'm, I'm going for somebody else now. This Simon Barnacopla sounds like a... And, and he's moved on. Um, and that's what happened. He, somebody who was a disciple would suddenly drop it and say, I'm not interested in learning from Jesus any longer. So why did that happen? And the third thing I want to look at is just, why did Peter do, go against the trend? Why did he and the rest of the twelve say, we are still sticking with you, Jesus? Jesus immediately points out, listen, one of you is going to let me down big time. And so he's not exactly stirring confidence in his, his followers there. But he's realistic about what's going to happen. But Peter is determined, we are going to stick with you whatever happens. Why? What led him to that? So those are the three things I want to look at. First of all, then, let's retrace the Peter story a little bit. Why did Peter start following Jesus? Well, he was brought by his brother. <laughs> and Andrew is a very interesting person to start with, not just because he's the patron saint of Scotland. That does him no harm in my, my eyes either. But uh, St. Andrew, who never saw Scotland, but anyhow, um, St. Andrew is somebody whom you never meet in the New Testament except when he's bringing somebody to Jesus. That's really interesting, isn't it? Every reference to Andrew, he's bringing some, And the first person he brought was his own brother. And uh, I think they were probably quite different from one another. Um, when I got back from Austria yesterday, uh, half an hour after I got home, we had two children visited on us overnight. <laughs> two of my grandchildren. And uh, they're the smallest ones, and they are so different from one another. Lilia and Amy. Lilia is number three in the family. And she's had to learn that as one of the milk children, you negotiate. You know, you've got bigger children that want to lord it over you and younger children that want all the attention. So you've got to be quite careful. And she's turned into a very quiet, uh, sweet, uh, complacent kind of girl who will do anything you ask her. And she, she's just got a lovely personality. Amy, on the other hand, is colourful and noisy and rough. She's the youngest and doesn't care who knows it. That means special privileges for her and her voice being heard at every opportunity. And Amy, she's great, but, uh, you know, she's, she's just so boisterous. It's just <coughs> unbelievable. 
I know exactly what she's going to say to me every time she comes through the door of our house, which is upside down, Grandad. And I then to turn her upside down, shake her and threaten to drop her on the floor and all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, she just loves that kind of stuff. She just loves being noticed and being out in the forefront. I guess Andrew and uh, his brother Peter were a little bit like that. Andrew's the quiet one. But he's the one that other people warm to. If they want to be introduced to Jesus, Andrew is a great bridge, you know, because you can make friends with Andrew very easily. And he'll do what you want. He'll be sympathetic. Uh, even if you've only got five loaves and two fishes and you want to feed 5,000 people with him, say, okay, kid, we'll give it a shot. Let's go and talk to Jesus and see what he can do. <laughs> That's Andrew. Peter, on the other hand, well, Peter, you know the stories from the New Testament. He's the one who's always uh, putting his foot in it. He's always getting it wrong. And always the one who's assuming the lead as well. He goes out front and he says things. And sometimes they're great. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And everybody's, whoa, that's great. And Jesus says, but I'm going to be crucified. And Peter, oh, no, 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 you're not. And he's, he's egg all over his face yet again. He just keeps doing that, doesn't he? And I think Andrew must have grown up apologizing for Peter all the time. <laughs> anyway, he brought him to Jesus to see what Jesus could do with him. And this is the thing. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Kephas. And Kephas, the Aramaic word which means a rock. And you see Andrew sort of rolling his eyes to the skies and thinking, well, I started here. He thinks he's going to be a rock. He thinks he's going to be solid and dependable. This is the excitable one that's always saying, me, 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 me. And, and, and jumping up and down. How is he ever going to be solid enough to be a rock? He's so inconsistent. But I think Jesus won Peter's heart by saying that. Because that was what Peter wanted to be. He knew he could be a leader. That's why he was always pushing himself out the front. He always wanted the best thing to happen out of every situation he was in. And if that meant he had to do it, then he would do it. The trouble was, he wasn't always a very good judge. <laughs> and so he was up and down. He was flaky. He, was, he, he, he wasn't always somebody you could rely on. And for Jesus to say, you are going to be a rock, I think that mattered an awful lot to him. So later on, you find Jesus in the town, Capernaum, where Peter is living. And he goes to the synagogue, and the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not like the teachers of the law. And the people were so amazed, they asked one another, what is this? A new teaching, and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. And sure enough, in the synagogue service, somebody came in who was uh, afflicted with a demonic problem, and Jesus solved it on the spot. He then went home with, for tea with Peter to Peter's house. And as soon as he left the synagogue, he went with James and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her. She began to wait on them. Poor lady, you think you might have made her a cup of tea, wouldn't you? Anyway, oh, you're well again, Granny. Come on, get on with it. Tea's waiting. <laughs> Anyhow, that was what, how they did things in Capernaum. And uh, Peter is starting to become used to the idea that Jesus is somebody a bit special. He can do all kinds of stuff. He can cure diseases. He can cast out demons. But Peter was a practical man as well. He was a fisherman. They had a fairly lucrative little fishing business. And uh, he did not think that Jesus knew anything about the kind of job he did. Which is why when Jesus asks him if he can use Peter's boat as a pulpit to teach people on the shore while he's out in the lake, that's fine with Peter. But he doesn't think that Jesus knows anything about fishing. So when at the end of the talk, Jesus says, okay, push the boat out from the land and uh, put the nets down and you'll catch some fish. Peter says, <laughs> not going to happen, Jesus. 
because uh, we've been at it all night and the fish are just not biting. And first thing in the morning when the sun is up, nobody ever catches fish. And Jesus says, just do it. So he does it. And you know what happens. More fish than they can cope with. You have to call another boat to help come and help them get it all in. And it's as if all the fish are sort of trying to swim into that. Oh, I want to be in there. I want to be in there. And they've never seen anything like it before. And Peter... Interesting. This is one of the endearing things about him. Instead of saying, whoa, Jesus is great. We're going to go into business together. He's terrified. Absolutely terrified. Because he's seen Jesus do those little miracles before. But this is what relates to his job, to his activity. He's supposed to be the professional. And suddenly he realizes Jesus is the master of more than he can ever conceive. And so he begins to realize just how grubby his little selfish, self-important life looks next to Jesus Christ. And he falls to his knees on the boat and says to Jesus, please, Lord, go away. I can't stand any more of it. And he says, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And he feels in the presence of Jesus, he's just judged. He's tiny. He's small. He has no self-respect left. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going away. I'm not going anywhere because you're going to be my rock I'm going to work with you. And you, from on, are going to be fishing, not just for fish, but for people. <laughs> and uh, you're going to be the builder of something that's going to be absolutely massive and worldwide because my kingdom starts from here and goes all over everywhere. And so I think if you wanted to sum up why it was that Peter started following Jesus, you'd have to say it was about four things, really. First of all, Jesus' power. He'd seen Jesus' power in action. But more than that, he'd seen what Jesus had used it for. Jesus wasn't a Paul Daniels kind of figure, an amazing Randy kind of figure. I'm going to do a, a trick for you now. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. Prepare to be astounded. Here we go. This will show that I am the Son of God and therefore entitled to all of your contributions at the end of the show. It wasn't like that, was it? No. What happened was that Jesus did lots of his miracles in small rooms in places where there was nobody around. Do you remember Jairus' daughter, the 12-year-old who came to life again? Nobody downstairs knew what was going on. Only Peter, James, and John and the girl's parents were invited upstairs. They saw the miracle. You'd have thought, wouldn't you, if Jesus had been yeah, doing the showmanship bit properly, he'd have had the girl brought down with the people mourning and violins playing and things like that. And said, now, folks, I am going to show you what I can do through my power. Little girl. And, you know, he's few explosions, blue powder flying everywhere, all that sort of stuff. Arise! Yes, Lord, here I come! You know, and, and uh, you know, triumphant organ music. Jesus didn't do that. And lots of the biggest things he did were quiet ones. Even the feeding of the 5,000 that Peter had seen with his own eyes. Most people must have been too far away to see what was happening. And they just assumed that Jesus had an endless source of bread and fish somewhere around that they couldn't see. And when the food got out to the edges of the crowd, there was far more than they could possibly eat. And it was only five loaves and two fish. But only the people who were at the middle of the whole thing, especially the small boy looking open-mouthed as his picnic stretched much further than he ever thought it would, only those people knew what was going on. And so Jesus saw, uh, Peter saw Jesus was using his powers to do good to people who needed it. He was doing it in all kinds of quiet ways. He wasn't building a reputation for himself. It was as if the miracles just flowed out of him without him being able to stop them. This was somebody who truly was not on the make as a new superstar, but somebody who represented the power of God. But second, he, he, he was, I think, bowled over by Jesus' faith in him, by the fact that Jesus took him seriously and saw him as a future leader who would be a rock for others. I bet that as he grew up, Peter was the butt of quite a few family jokes. 
Because somebody who falls flat on his face often cannot not be, can he? Uh, obviously, people, oh, it's just Peter being Peter again. You know, he had that kind of reputation. And now Jesus wants to give him a place and a dignity he's never had before. But he's got to earn it, and he's got to be a rock. He's being taken seriously. And that's one of the things when you become a Christian, isn't it? That you start to realize you're in the hands of somebody who takes you seriously. Who wants to bring out of your life the very best that there can be brought out of you. And who wants to do it uh, as he shapes you painfully sometimes, pleasantly other times, into the kind of person you've always dreamt of being and you never make yourself. So that was another thing. Third thing would be Jesus' words. He'd started to see that whether he understood them or not, Jesus' words made a lot of sense. He'd been there at the Sermon on the Mount, and I think if you'd asked Peter afterwards, okay, Peter, can you give us a theological interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount? He wouldn't have known where to start. But he'd heard such incredible things, coruscating phrases, fantastic stories, wonderful ideas. He just listened to it spellbound and thought, this is what we need. This is God's kingdom coming in action. And he didn't understand it all. And what he says at the end of chapter 6 here, it's not as much as he'll be able to say about Jesus later on because he still hasn't understood an awful lot about Jesus. But he's on the way. And Jesus' words have started to convince him, even when he doesn't really understand them. Jesus' vision, that's the fourth thing. He, Peter was a, a northern Galilean, somebody who lived around the lake. And the Galileans were very patriotic and very religious people. They desperately wanted to see Israel established as a nation once again, living free in its own right. And as Peter went around the lake selling his fish, he was selling it to Greek immigrants, to Roman soldiers, to Samaritans, to all kinds of people. And Galilee of the nations, as it was called, was a real melting pot for people from all over everywhere. We know that in Zephyrus, which was about four miles down the road uh, from where Peter lived, uh, uh, there, there were at least four pagan temples. And it was built as a Roman city. And uh, the, the Jewish culture just seemed to be going completely. Now, Peter, like all the other Jewish little boys that lived around the lake, had been brought up to go to the synagogue and to hear stories from the Old Testament about what God was one day going to do with his people. And Galilee was always a rebellious area. Not long after Jesus' death, you find that the Jews up there stopped paying their taxes to Rome and the Romans have to march in and destroy everything before they, they gain control again. There were always rumours of rebellion coming from Galilee. And Peter lived in the midst of that. And Peter was affected by that. And he desperately wanted to see the kingdom of God come. And now for the first time in his life, he met somebody who seemed to be the first gleam of the approaching dawn. Jesus looked as if he really was going to bring into existence something Peter had dreamt about and prayed for all of his life, but never thought he would see himself. So for all those reasons, he started following Jesus. And there were other fans, the people with the posters on the wall, the people with the Jesus buttons in the lapels. And they followed not quite so closely as Peter and the others, but they followed. And then they gave up. In chapter 6, it all stopped. Why did other people stop following Jesus. Well, we haven't read the whole story in chapter 6. And it's an interesting one because it's a long chapter and John seems to give you a blow-by-blow -blow account of everything that takes place. Um, why does he do that? Well, I think it's because he wants you really to understand why Jesus was rejected by a lot of people. They were making a tragic mistake, but he wants you to understand why they did it. That's why I think in chapter 6, it's to and fro. Jesus says a bit, they say a bit. They, you know, Jesus says a bit, they say a bit. And it goes on like that all the way down. It's often called Jesus' discourse about the bread of life. 
It's not really a discourse. It might have been in the synagogue in Capernaum, it seems to have been where that took place, but um, uh, it wasn't that uh, the preacher was standing there and delivering a discourse and everybody else was sitting in respectful silence. In the synagogue in those days, I don't want to give you people ideas, all right, but in the synagogue in those days, you could interrupt, you could object, you could ask questions, just, just, just hold yourself till coffee time, then you can tell me how badly I've done, all right? But uh, it, it was quite normal to do that. But this sounds as if it was a real public meeting, you know, as if people were, were really weighing in on Jesus again and again. He could say him more than a couple of sentences before, but, 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 that's ridiculous, Jesus. And they were, they were off again. So what's going on in this, this, this uh, whole thing? I don't want to read the whole thing with you, so let's just summarize it a little bit. First thing is that they, they, they were saying something like this. Wow, I think he's done some more magic. Is that right, Jesus? Why are they saying that? Well, because the last thing that Jesus had done, and many of them had been there, had been across the other side of the lake. And at night, the disciples had been seen coming back in their boat. But Jesus wasn't with them. Now, the next, so that meant, meant he was still there. So the fan club went to that side of the lake the next morning. Jesus, Jesus, come and do some miracle, Jesus. We've got some sick people here. No, Jesus. So they all go back to Capernaum. And they go in the synagogue. And there's Jesus. So they say, how did you get here? When did you arrive? Because they are pretty sure that Jesus has done another one of his sneaky miracles. You know, without them noticing. And you have to keep your eye on Jesus because he doesn't publicize those miracles. And so, what happened? Were you teleported back across the lake? Did you run across on the water? What actually happened? Did somebody come with a boat that we don't know anything about? And so they're saying, you're doing magic, aren't you? You're doing it again. Is that another one? Can we tell the papers about this one? And Jesus' reply basically is, that's not important. Don't be fascinated with what doesn't matter. And Jesus says, don't get fascinated with the details of the stuff I do, but look at what lies behind it. Why do I do do this stuff? What does it actually prove? So they've asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? (laughs) Which is trying to show that he's done it miraculously. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate those loaves and had your fill. When I produced bread, you had, you had all you could possibly eat. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you on him. God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So don't look at the miracles. Look at who's behind them. And look at what that says about me and who I must be. But they come back, okay, fair enough, you want to talk about God. So what must we do to make God happy then? How do we do the works of the Father? And Jesus realizes they're just being religious to keep him happy. And so he says, listen, the work of God is simply to trust. You don't have to do amazing things. You don't have to go on pilgrimages. You don't have to read the Bible backwards from start to finish. You don't have to do anything incredible like that. All you have to do is trust me. Believe that God has sent me and put your trust in me so that you're doing what I tell you. That is the work that God wants. Now, they weren't used to hearing something like this because most rabbis uh, who were going around were saying, this people is accursed and uh, the country is in the hands of the Romans because we're not living by the law of the Old Testament. Here are some laws that you ought to keep and I'll bet you don't keep them. And many of the people who lived in Galilee who were poor could not possibly live up to all of the regulations that the Pharisees wanted to lay upon them. Why? Because they had jobs to do. They couldn't be as holy as these wealthy middle-class people who could spend all their time in, in, in the temple if they wanted to. And so um, it was impossible, and they just had guilt heaped on them by all kinds of people. And now Jesus was saying, listen, it's not things you have to do. That's not the point. The point is that you trust me. I am going to do everything. 
he's virtually implying that is necessary for your salvation. And if you come aboard with me, you will find that all you have to do is believe. Incidentally, if any of us are Christians this morning, that is such an important message, isn't it? That, and, and people uh, think all the time, what must I do? What must I do? What does God want me to do? How can I make God pleased with me? And the answer is, there's nothing you can do. You can simply trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, everything happens. But that's on that story. Let's, let's move on with this then. Trust what I tell you, says Jesus. Trust who I am. And they think, see, this is their opportunity. They really want Jesus to produce more bread to make life softer for them. So they say basically, okay, do some Moses-sized miracles for us and uh, prove that should trust you. Moses was a person whom the children of Israel trusted way back, led them out of Egypt right to the promised land. And you know, Moses, he produced bread in the desert for them, morning after morning, 40 years of this stuff. Now, you've done nothing like that. Okay, you've healed a few old ladies of their lumbago and stuff like that, but there must be more that you can do. You know, prove that you are as least, at least as big as Moses. And Jesus comes back in a way they're not expecting. He says, that wasn't Moses. <laughs> that was God behind Moses. And what you're not seeing is that just as God was using Moses to produce bread, which was good for them to eat in the morning, but would go stale very quickly and didn't keep them alive forever, God has something to give you today through me, which is much more important. Real life-giving bread. Something that your soul can feed on, that will keep you going, not just through this life, but right out the other side as well, and it'll never let you down. That kind of bread you need. You need something that gives you, well, what Colin was talking about really, isn't it? The assurance that even once you reach the end of this life, that's not it. There's more to come, and you're safe in the hands of someone who will never, ever let go. And that life-giving bread, says Jesus, is what I've come to give. That's the important thing. That's what I've got to focus on. At most funerals, uh, I guess, uh, you're often, well, many funerals anyway, you're invited back for a cup of tea afterwards or something like that, and often a table spread with all sorts of food. And people really don't want to eat much of it if they were close to the person who's died. Why? Because death is a sad thing. It's separation. It's saying goodbye to someone. And you don't go in there and think, oh, look at that trifle. I've got to have some of that sausage rolls. Oh, yeah, this is going to be a great afternoon. That some, the bread that perishes suddenly isn't that important unless you've got the bread that goes on forever, the thing that nourishes your life all the time. And Jesus is saying, that's what God wants to give you. So they come back. All right, now we're talking. Bread that lasts forever. Okay, give us some of that right now. We're hungry people. Give us this food now and evermore. And Jesus says, you have not got the point. Yeah, I am the bread, is what he says. I can take away your hunger forever. But he then starts saying, most of you don't believe me, do you? You know, there are only some people who have the insight to see this. And they are the ones whom the Father has given to me. And they will see it. The rest of you, you've really got the strength to understand. And they really don't like this. Living bread come down from heaven. And they're not talking to Jesus at this point. They're murmuring in the back row. <laughs> He's lost the plot. I know his parents in Nazareth. This is Joseph's son. You know, he was a carpenter. I mean, yeah. How can he say he's come down from heaven when we know he spent uh, years working in a carpenter's shop? Uh, he's trying to con us. And Jesus comes back and says, say what you're thinking. Don't murmur in the background. I know some of you don't get it. But anyone who eats this bread, he repeats, is going to live forever. Uh, when he says, say what you're thinking, or don't, don't murmur, he's using the, word, the, the Greek word, gongizi, which, uh, which uh, is supposed to be a word that sounds like blue-winged doves. Doesn't sound much that 
waiting me, but maybe I say, going, guzzling, 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 guzzling. It's a bit like the word in English, murmur, you know, it's murmur, murmur, murmur. It's imitating the sound it's made. So you hear the sound in the back of the synagogue, doing Nazareth, Joseph, Mary, you know, and they're murmuring away about Jesus. And Jesus says, don't, don't be like that. Say what you've got to say. Bring it all out there and uh, realize that what I'm saying is something that you can accept or not, but it's important. It's desperately important. Unless you eat the flesh of the son of, of, of man, he says, you have no life in you. And this is a repulsive idea. We're like, eat you? That's a pretty repulsive idea. We don't want to get that close to you. And then Jesus makes it worse and says, and drink my blood. <laughs> and you can see, this is horrendous. That's where real undying life comes from, he says, nowhere else. And so this, this is, they've almost had this. And they say, we don't like this way of talking, Jesus. You're making us nervous. This is a hard saying, they say. Who can hear this? We can't, we, we can't relate to this at all. And what they, I think some of them have started to see is that Jesus is demanding from them a kind of relationship that they're not prepared to have to them. They're very happy for Jesus to be the supplier of food and security and freedom from the Romans and all that sort of stuff. But they don't want to get up close and personal with Jesus. They don't want him to be in charge of their lives. A daily presence there with them. They don't want to do what he says and follow his commands. They want Jesus on their own terms. And so Jesus says, there's more, there's more than that. You're nervous now, but I haven't talked yet about me going back up to the heavens where I came from. And now they say, what? He came down from heaven, he's going back up there? What? This is ridiculous, what's going on here? You won't like that either, he says. But unless the Father loves you, you'll never accept what I'm saying. Don't think I'm trying to talk you over this morning. I am simply announcing what the truth is. And you can take it or not as you wish. And I believe that many of those people in Capernaum may later on, further down the line, have become Christians because of the way that Jesus is just laying those ideas in their minds now. Right now, they reject him. After the cross and the resurrection, what do you find? You find Christianity all over the country. And I believe that's because people who had heard Jesus' teaching and had responded against it at that point suddenly saw what it was all about. Now we know what he's talking about. Yes, he really was the son of God. He came down here, he died on the cross, he's risen again. And people are getting excited about him everywhere. And so I think for some of these people, the time had just not come yet. But this, this, at this point, they said, right, that's it. We're out of here. Well, that's not exactly what John's gospel says, but you get the point. And so they leave him and they go away. And Peter's face falls because, you know, he had been told he was going to be a fisher of men. And he's got all of these fish in the net, and suddenly the net's got a hole in it. <laughs> and they're all just disappearing back into the water. And he thinks, oh, this is not what Jesus called me for, is it? Really? And so Jesus turns around to his disciples who are left and says, you two, are you going? And actually, in the Greek, it seems like he asked the question in such a way that he's expecting them to say, no, we're staying with you. So the way he asks the question, he's expressing some confidence in them. You do understand, don't you? You're not going anywhere, are you? He makes that offer to them because it depends on them. Okay, the Father has brought him, them to him and he knows that uh, uh, they understand what he's talking about but he still gives them the chance to walk away. Jesus never compels any of us to obey him. I remember a preacher once saying, Jesus was the man who had the self-command to look at the rich young ruler when he came to him and he loved him, it says in the story. 
and he had the self-command to stand there and let the rich young ruler walk sadly away because he couldn't face up to the challenge Jesus was giving. And Jesus stood there and didn't move a muscle to call him back. There are many people I know who would have gone running after him. Oh, come on, come on. Look, let's talk about this again. Let's see if I can make you make sense of this. Or, well, maybe you don't have to give it all away. Maybe you can give your, your money away in installments and uh, we'll, we'll soften the blow for you. Jesus doesn't do that. He gives his demand and then leaves it to human beings to make their own choice for themselves. And so this is what he's doing here. You people, you've been following me around. You are my disciples, but you can leave if you want to. God never compels. God never dragoons. He leaves it up to our agreement. And Peter, well, Peter uh, comes up with the right answer for once. So why did all these people who went away not want to listen? Well, let me just give you a few reasons for that. First, I think what they wanted really was just an immediate escape from reality. They wanted Jesus to make their lives more pleasant. Endless bread on tap. <laughs> and maybe Jesus could get round to red wine as well when he, he really got his, in, into gear. You know, they just wanted whatever Jesus gave them. Perhaps freedom from the Romans, a free country once again, but just a nice life. And there are lots of people who would love to believe in Jesus if that was all that was involved. Perhaps they wanted something that would leave them in charge of their own lives. They didn't want Jesus muscling in and taking control of their thoughts, of their actions, of their money, of their relationships. They just wanted Jesus to top up their bank account and then let them get on with it. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does meet all the needs of his people in the most amazing ways when they follow him. But he's in charge of the process. It's not just, he's not just an add-on to anybody's life. He's the Lord or he's nothing. And also, I think they wanted somebody they could watch, not trust. Jesus was the superstar up on the stage. And they'd go to the concert and watch it and then go home and live their life just as it's been before. And they'd look back and think, oh, that was a great night, a fantastic show, wonderful thing. But it wasn't that Jesus was coming back home to live with them. <laughs> and that's what Jesus wanted to do. And he said, if you remain in me, in chapter 6, and I remain in you, that's what we're shooting for here. That's what we want to have to have. So Peter decided to keep on following Jesus. Why did he do that? Well, I think there are various reasons, some of them quite recent. For one thing, he'd been there when the Sermon on the Mount was preached. Oops, sorry. That's the, 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 the greatest teaching that Jesus ever gave, probably. Certainly the only sermon that we get in full field. And as he listened to all of this stuff, it must have just been absolutely spinning. Was there ever a rabbi that taught like this? It's amazing. This is incredible stuff. But also, when they'd finished on the other side of the lake, do you remember the night before all of this happened, the disciples had gone back home again. And they'd gone across the Lake of Galilee, and suddenly a storm had sprung up. That's something that often does happen in Galilee. You can be there on a very, uh, and, uh, a very clear, open, warm day, and it can seem just as if, oh, it's, nothing's going to dis disturb the climate. It's, oh, it's just like the beach and painting in August. It's wonderful. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, you can get a storm, a squall that is so big, it can just uh, drench you and sink your boat within minutes. And that was what was threatening to happen. And uh, Jesus, um, who's been left behind, uh, he needs to collect his thoughts, he needs to pray, he needs to talk to his father, realises what's going on, and walks to the across the water. And Peter, it had to be Peter, didn't it? Standing in the boat says, it is the Lord! And being Peter, the next thing he says is, Lord, if you can do this stuff, walk on the water, if it's really you, bid me come to you. And he, he probably thought that all the other disciples would just think, oh, isn't Peter a great man of faith? And then Jesus took his breath away by saying, okay, hop out. 
Uh, no, I can see it's you. No, 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 no hop out. Uh, well, you've been into the water. Yep. Uh, oh, all right. And so Peter gets out of the boat onto the water. And to his surprise, he's able to stand on the surface of the waves. And I remember Billy Strachan, the great uh, sort of comedian, medieval teacher, telling the story once and saying, and so, you know, Peter starts being a bit big-headed, as he usually is, turns around and gives a little bow to the people in the boat and all the rest of it, takes his eyes off Jesus and immediately, mm, down into the water. Lord, help me, save me. And Jesus reaches out his hand. And Peter, that is incredible. He's the Lord of the waves and the winds as well. And so all of this is churning around in Peter's mind as the, he watches those disciples in Capernaum hand in their membership cards and walk away. And all that he's just been through fills his mind and his heart. And so he comes out with a statement to Jesus, this three-part thing that he says. And we're near finished. This is the end of it. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And he's just summed up in his own bumbling Peter way. <laughs> the basis of discipleship. The essence to which we have to get if we're really going to follow Jesus properly. Lord, he says, to whom shall we go? There's no one like you anywhere else. We can try all sorts of other things, and some of us have. But they don't take you anywhere near where Jesus does. He's the only person who has the guarantee of eternal life. He's the only person who can meet your needs in the present. He's the only person who has the authority and the right and the wisdom to guide and govern your life day by day. Micromanage what happens to you in, in, in a way that never happens anywhere else in the universe. And Peter says, there's nowhere we can go where they have the word of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. That's an interesting one. Because the word he uses for word isn't the same that you find at the start of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Because the words of eternal life sound like something big and permanent. If Peter's saying here, you're, you've got the secrets. You've got key documents. You know the, 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 the words that make everything happen. But actually, the word he uses here is the word rhema, not logos, as it is in chapter 1. And logos means something that's fixed and permanent and valuable and important and incredibly... Rema simply means something you say. What he's saying here is, when you speak, we hear things coming through your conversation that we don't understand all the time. But you're talking about the life of the age to come. That's what life eternal is. Not just life after death, but the life of God's kingdom. A new incredible quality of life that comes into you once you become a follower of Jesus. And we see these timeless words just coming into your conversation again and again. Nobody talks like this. Nobody has those kinds of things. You have the words of eternal life. And every time we speak, we get that. Something else comes across to us that was never there before. And so he's saying, really, you are the only key to God's kingdom and to the age to come. So he finishes, so we believe and we know that you're the Holy One of God. He said, we believe, we trusted you. We put our trust in you in just the way that you wanted those people in the synagogue to do it. And now we know it because you've given us the truth in spades, miracle after miracle, day after day, teaching after teaching. And every time we spend a day with you, it becomes across all the more really that you really are the Holy One of God. We trusted you, and as a result of that, we've proved it's all true. And so Peter, at the end of this whole story, has nowhere else to go but to the only source he knows where eternal life comes from. And we can all say these things too if we're Christians, can't we? Mm -hmm. 
In fact, why wouldn't you do that? Just, you know, you're coming back calling, aren't you? Just before Cole comes back, let's pray, shall we? And if you're a Christian, say this prayer with me. Lord, where else could we go? There is no one like you anywhere. You are the only key to God's kingdom and the age to come. We trusted you, and you have proved it's all true. Amen.